Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are new this morning visiting with us today, I'm Mike Weigline, the pastor here, and I'll just add my greetings to everyone else. Glad to see everybody here this morning. So just wanted to take a moment to say thank you uh, to all of you as the congregation and to the elders in particular for your support and encouragement over the last several weeks and months as my dad has been sick and as we lost him a couple weeks ago. It's just really meant a lot. Um, we received the love from you on behalf of my family. So thank you for that and especially for the elders who have stepped in to preach on short notice the last couple of Sundays. Special thanks to them. Really appreciate that. So we are returning this morning to the life of David. We've been slowly working our way through the books of First and Second Samuel this summer, and we are almost done. We're going to be wrapping up very soon in the life of David, but we have a few more sermons to go before we get there, and we're covering a lot of ground this morning. We're going to be looking at Second Samuel chapters 13 through 20. We are going to be summarizing most of that because there's so much to cover, but it's very important in the life of David what's going on here, David as an old man. So, so let's pray uh, before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of another day, uh, for the life that you have given us, and for the uh, gift of being in fellowship with one another, the chance to come and to worship you together in the body of Christ. And we pray this morning, Lord, uh, that you would speak to us once again. Uh, We trust, Lord, that you speak through your word, uh, that your word is not dead, it is not old, uh, but it is living and active. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Uh, Lord, whatever it is that you want to say to us, uh, we pray that we would be open to hear it, to receive it, uh, that you would use it to change our lives. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So uh, before we get to our passage for today, or our big chunk of scripture for today, we're going to do a a quick review of uh, where we are in the story of the life of David. And we've called this sermon series, The Lord Looks at the Heart, in reference to the passage where God chooses and anoints David as king over all of Israel, this this unsuspecting shepherd um, as a boy to be the king. Uh, to be the shepherd of God's chosen people. And along the way, God also made a covenant promise to David that through his line would come someone through whom God would establish an everlasting kingdom. And this is a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And throughout David's life as a young man, there has been good reason for us to cheer him on as we followed his story. Uh, He's handsome. He's tough. He chases down lions and bears that steal his sheep, and he takes the sheep back. He's a dutiful son to his father, Jesse. He's a good friend to Jonathan. He's brave. He's willing to take on the giant Goliath when nobody else would. And we see that he is a skilled fighter. He's a talented poet and musician. He's a charismatic leader. People are just drawn to him. They want to follow him and to be with him. Uh, What's not to love about this young David? I've wondered if he wouldn't do well on The Bachelor, if he was uh, the candidate on there. And did I mention that he's handsome? 
He's very handsome. We're told that many times in scripture. And so we've been cheering him on this whole time, uh, just waiting to see what's gonna happen with David. We want him to become king. We want him to be leading Israel. We just know good things are in store for him. And on top of all of this, and most importantly, David has a strong faith. He's willing to trust in God's providence and sovereignty, to follow God's leading, and even to put his life in God's hands. And we see this most especially during this, his time in the wilderness when he is on the run from King Saul as a young man. And more than once, we see that David refuses to take matters into his own hands. He could take Saul's life, but he doesn't. And he trusts in God's promise and timing to make him king. And so looking at David during this time in his life, it's easy to see why he's described in scripture as a man after God's own heart. We look at the the situations and the circumstances of his life and we think, yes, this is what a man or a person after God's own heart looks like. He seems like such a good guy, a true hero. But then things become more complicated after David becomes king. His flaws become more obvious. His sins become more pronounced. And through this, we're reminded that First and Second Samuel doesn't present us with a saintly David who transcends the common sins and temptations that we mere mortals are forced to de- deal with day in and day out. There are things that we can learn from David's example, yes, but these things are both good and bad. And we learn from David as much what not to do in life as we learn what to do. And the gift of the David story, and the thing that we have to remember, the gift of the David story is not that David is some superhero who gives us an example to aspire to, but we may never reach, but that David is all too human. And through him, we witness what it looks like for a broken and flawed and sinful human being to walk through life involved with God. That is the gift of the David story. And we said it before in this series, uh, but it's worth saying again that David is not the hero of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, but God himself is the hero. And we need to remember that in all of scripture, and that's where we want to place our focus. After David becomes king, He begins to enjoy the privileges of his position in ways that Israel's kings were instructed not to do. He takes many wives and concubines. He collects for himself great wealth and riches. And he instructs his troops to go and fight for him instead of leading them into battle himself. And when Dan Stein preached a few weeks ago on the story of David and Bathsheba and all that was bound up in that story, uh, David's lust, his, his abuse of power that led to sexual exploitation and to murder, as well as the betrayal and deceit to cover it all up and preserve his reputation. I've often thought, you know, the plot to cover up his sin, the links that David goes to not to be found out seem to be particularly shocking. We may, uh, we may relate to David in some ways in the sin itself. Uh, we, can ex- we maybe have experienced lust and the desire to take something that's not ours, but the cover-up is really the shocking part, I think, for a lot of us, that David would be willing to send his friend uh, into the front lines of battle to be killed in order to cover all of this up. And yet, I've also wondered, in all of the shock, that maybe we shouldn't distance ourselves so much from David in all of that. 
I wonder how many of us have surprised ourselves with things that we have done in our lives to cover up our sin and to preserve our own reputations. Maybe our hearts are not so far from David's and what he did in that story. Dan pointed out from that passage that the lack of discipline and accountability in David's life helped lead to this most notorious of his sins. His fall in this case started well before he found himself watching Bathsheba from his roof. And you'll remember that God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David with his sin. And David admits his guilt, and Nathan declares God's forgiveness over David, saying, the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. And for many of us, the story ends there, at least in our minds. Or we we may remember that the, the first child born to Bathsheba dies, and then she gives birth to Solomon, who will inherit his father's kingdom, and he's included in the list of Jesus' ancestors. And if we leave things here, we might be tempted to think that David's sin with Bathsheba had some immediate, serious consequences, but then things get pretty much back on track. But when we keep reading the book of 2 Samuel, we quickly find that this is not the case. Neither David nor his family nor his reign as king ever fully recover from this incident in his life, which is why we're picking up this week where Dan left off. And we're given a clue of what's to come for David and for Israel in Nathan's words at the end of this story. It said, God sent the prophet to confront the king, but also to pronounce God's judgment on him. So what Nathan says to David comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 14. It says, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord to David in this passage is that the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And these words play out in David's life. And this is what we see in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 20. That David's world descends into a soap opera of chaos and of tragedy. And we find in these chapters some of the most difficult and heart-wrenching passages in all of Scripture. They are painful to read at times. What we see is that, that in these passages, everyone is related to everyone else. There are old grudges and rivalries that, that come to the surface 
There are loyalties that are betrayed. And friends and family turn against each other. And we particularly see the way that David's own sin is reflected back to him through the lives of his children. And this is a difficult reality for for all parents, seeing our own sin show up in the lives of our children. And so we pray, Lord, have mercy on us all. It all begins with the assault of David's daughter Tamar by her brother Amnon. And this, is the calculated, this leads to the calculated murder of Amnon by David's other son, Absalom. And this becomes the central tension in these passages. The relationship between David and his favorite son, Absalom. Amnon comes up with this uh, plot to seduce his sister. And then he takes her. And then his brother Absalom, over years, plots to take Amnon's life. And because of that, David, uh, he exiles his son Absalom. He sends him away physically. And then after he invites him back, he still continues to exile him emotionally. He refuses to meet with him, to see him, to offer forgiveness in this case. And part of what's remarkable about this is that the very forgiveness and grace that God had offered to David through his sin with Bathsheba David refuses to offer to his son, Absalom. And a lot of commentators would point out that David's passivity as a father in the lives of his children and in in not exacting justice with Amnon, with his sin, with Tamar, all of this is what allows this to descend into chaos. And we see David's sin on full display. And so finally, Absalom turns against his father. He rebels against him. And he attempts to seize David's kingdom for himself. And many of David's loyal subjects, even many of his friends and his closest advisors, they turn against him. And they join on Absalom's side. And all of this is very calculated and self-serving. And finally, David is forced to flee from Jerusalem into the wilderness in order to save his life. And for a brief time, it seems that David has been displaced, that he is no longer the king of Israel, even though he is God's anointed. It's an ironic reversal for David. As a young man, he fled to the wilderness to escape Saul, who was in many ways a father figure to him, even though David had been chosen by God to be the king. And now as an old man, David is fleeing in the wilderness again to escape Absalom, his favorite son, even though David was still God's chosen king for Israel. And in reading these chapters, it almost feels like a return to the time of the judges when everyone was doing right what was right in their own eyes. If you read these chapters yourself, and I I would encourage you to do so, even though they are hard and painful to read, they are God's word, and they are useful for training and teaching and rebuking. So read them. But what you'll find if you read these passages is that God is noticeably absent from what is going on. God is mentioned to some degree in these passages, but he's not present in any sort of active way. And that's always a sign to you in scripture that things are going to go off course, or they already have. People aren't seeking his counsel. People are not following his commands. Everyone's taking counsel from other people, people who tell them what they want to hear. And these people who are giving counsel are in turn encouraging their self-indulgent behaviors. Go ahead, take your sister. Go ahead, take your father's kingdom. And this is no way for God's people to live. 
These chapters are painful to read because they are a case study in the consequences of sin. Sin begets sin, which begets even more sin. And nobody stops the cycle until David at the very end. Eugene Peterson describes what's going on here in this way. He says, sin fed on sin. The rape of Tamar fed into the murder of Amnon, which fed into the hard-heartedness of David. Absalom responded to Amnon's sin by sinning. And then David responded to Absalom's sin by sinning. Absalom got rid of David by killing him. And then, excuse me, of Amnon by killing him. And then David got rid of Absalom by shunning him. David lost his son Amnon because of the sin of Absalom. And David lost his son Absalom by his own sin. It's not fun to talk about sin. I don't, I don't like to talk about sin, I will admit. And it's not fun to talk about sin that takes down our heroes, like we see happening with David here. It's especially not fun to talk about sin in a way that forces us to confront our own struggles with it, that reminds us that, we have, uh, that there are real consequences of sin in our lives. We know it's true if we're honest with ourselves. We know that we struggle with sin. That there are things that we don't want to do, that we know we should not do, and yet we still do them. That there are things that we know we should do, and we choose not to do them for whatever reason, as the way Paul narrates it. We know that we struggle with sin, and that it affects our lives. And not only our lives, but it affects the lives of the people around us. We know it's true, but it's a truth that not many of us want to be confronted with. I don't know many people that when they are confronted with their sin say, you're right, you're right. (laughs) I struggle with that. I messed up. I continue to struggle with that. We don't like to admit our sin much of the time. And there's a tension here in this story that we run into in the Christian life that even though David had been forgiven by God, and we, we know that that forgiveness is true and real, the earthly consequences of his sin were not erased. David's sin played out in his life, and it spilled over into the life of his family and eventually into the life of the whole kingdom of Israel. And the same can be true, can be said for each one of us with our own sin, that it will play out in our lives, and it will affect the people close to us in the communities that we are a part of. If you speak harshly with your loved ones, that's going to affect your family life. If you tear down your coworkers, if you speak badly about them behind their backs, that's going to infect your work environment. If you're manipulative or gossipy here at church amongst the congregation, that's going to affect the way that we live together as the body of Christ. And that's not to mention things such as deceit or abuse or addictions and different kinds of sins and the ways that they spill out into our lives. And so what we might take away from these episodes in David's life is recognizing that sin is serious business, and we toy with it at our own peril. Its consequences can be long-lasting and far-reaching. And sometimes God, in God's great mercy and grace, delivers us from the earthly consequences of our sin. And I hope you have experienced that in your life to some degree. But often the consequences play out even under God's grace even under God's grace. And this is why the New Testament writers warn us so strongly to be on our guard against sin because it is such serious business. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the author talks about the sin that so easily entangles. It will trap you if you are not careful. If you allow yourself to touch with it or, or touch it or engage with it, it will get you. And this is what we see happen with David and his family members. The apostle Peter says in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 8, to beware, for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Sin and evil are not passive. They're not just sort of out there waiting, and if you happen to run into it, it's going to get you. Sin is active, and it is trying to take you down. And we have an active role to play in fighting against it. Peter goes on to say, resist him, your enemy the devil, standing firm in the faith. But sin is active, friends. Do not underestimate its power. And Jesus himself says that if there is something that is causing you to sin, get rid of it. This is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This is unpleasant imagery. I know I am not uh, an advocate of the literal interpretation or application of these passages, but Jesus is being intentionally provocative here. He's trying to get our attention to say, take sin seriously in your life. Get it out of your life however you can. A good friend of mine, a man named Tom Goodrich, often says this way about this, uh, what Jesus is saying here. He says, get surgical with your sin. Get surgical with your sin. This is what Jesus is instructing us to do here. This is the difference between confession and repentance. It's important for us to confess our sins, to admit it, but it's even more important to repent, to turn away from it, to get rid of it, to leave it behind. This is what God is calling us to do with the sin in our lives. I think one of the most important things to recognize with sin is its deceptive nature. Satan is called the father of lies in scripture. And two of the most uh, well-known stories of temptation in scripture are all about deceit. We see it with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say this? If you eat of this fruit, you shall not die. And we also see it with Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, in the gospels, where Satan comes and deceives. Did God really say this? Is this what it's supposed to be like? The last thing that sin wants is to be recognized as sin or for its destructive nature. And I think it's also important for us as human beings, fallen human beings, to recognize the deceitfulness in our own hearts. The deceitfulness in our own hearts. When we are tempted by sin, the lies start coming quickly. I can handle this. I can handle this. I'm in complete control of this situation. This is not more powerful than me. This won't hurt anybody if I do this. It's really not that bad in the first place. And the biggest lie, I think, is the one that comes of fulfillment. If I do this, then I will be happy. If I do this, my life is going to be better in some way, and that justifies the behavior, the sin. When we know that all sin ever does is leave us empty and wanting more, or at least life of experiencing pursuing sin will teach us that. 
We do well to listen to David's words from Psalm 62. It's a psalm which uh, is often associated with this story that he wrote during this time of his life. And he says, my soul finds rest in God alone and my salvation comes from him. David can write this honestly because he's experienced it for himself. David had pursued and obtained every earthly pleasure, money, power, sex, and yet it had all left him empty and his life in tatters. It wasn't until David went back into the wilderness that he rediscovered what he had lost during his years of self-indulgence. In his rivalry with Absalom, David had hit rock bottom. It seemed that he had lost everything that God had given him and quite possibly was about to lose his life. And so he goes out into the wilderness once again. But this is the same wilderness where David first learned to trust God as a boy shepherd. And this is the same wilderness where God had delivered David from Saul. And now David is in the wilderness again as an old man. And he again learns to put his trust in God It's in the wilderness that David finds his redemption. Eugene Peterson writes that David is restored in three specific ways during this time in the wilderness in his life. He says that David recovers prayer, that David recovers humility, and that David recovers compassion. As I said, God is noticeably absent in these chapters, and it's not until David flees that we see him turn back to God. David had been trusting too much in the counsel of other people instead of turning to the Lord and seeking the Lord's counsel. But after his most trusted advisor betrayed him, he looks to God again. And we see him pray briefly in our passage to, passages today from 2 Samuel. But there are several psalms that are attributed to David from these episodes. Psalm 55, Psalms 62 and 63, and most especially Psalm 3. And this is what David prays in Psalm 3. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And what we see here is a a brief and honest prayer from David, a man who has lost everything. David lays out his plight before the Lord He says, look at my situation, God. I am surrounded by my enemies, people trying to take my life. Nobody thinks that you're going to help me this time. But then David reaffirms his trust in the Lord. The only reason he's still alive at all is because God has protected him. And he calls on the Lord to save him. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, oh my God. We would all do well to learn to pray this way in our times of trouble. David has recovered prayer through this trial. And this is where things begin to turn around for him as he reconnects with God. David also recovers humility. We've been talking a lot about humility in here this year, I feel like. And humility is always a good lesson to learn, but it is rarely enjoyable to learn. 
David wasn't seeking humility. He was humbled. It came to him. It was forced upon him. The people's hearts had left him for his son. The same people that had sung songs about him when he was a young man had now turned and said, we want to follow Absalom instead. He was humbled. But David received his lesson. And we see this most, uh, ex- most specifically in his exchange with a man named Shammai in these passages. A man who, as David was leaving Jerusalem in shame, was yelling down from a mountain curses upon David. And rather than retaliate, and some of David's men were saying, let us go kill him for you. Rather than retaliate, David said this, his words may be God's word to me. Let him be. His words may be God's word to me. We see that David was humbled. And David recovers compassion. This story, if you know it, ends tragically with Absalom's death. And David's lament over him, crying out, oh, Absalom, Absalom. My son, my son, would that I had died instead of you. David would have happily given his own life to preserve Absalom's. Absalom's death is not what David desired. He had asked for mercy for his son. And after David had been restored as king, we see that he offered mercy to those who had betrayed him. And in some cases, forgiveness. Through this whole experience, David had recovered compassion. The story of David and Absalom, it's, it's not a happy one. There's not a fairy tale ending to it, but it is a redemptive story. David doesn't escape the consequences of his sin. He, he feels them so powerfully. He's not relieved of suffering, but God uses this time in David's life to redeem him, to rescue him from his life of sin And David returns a changed and humble king, not a sinless king, but changed and humbled and perhaps a better one for it. This is the truth of the Christian life. It's not about avoiding pain and suffering. It's not about escaping the earthly consequences of our sin. Friends, like David, God wants to rid each of us of our sin, to take us into a wilderness place, to deal with us, and to set us free. And I would say to you today, if there is something in your life that is causing you to sin, to do everything in your power to get rid of it. It is not worth clinging to, whatever it is. Pray that God would reveal to you the lies that people are telling you or that the world is telling you or that you are telling yourself. Look for the things that cause you to sin, whatever it is. If it's your money, if it's something you own, if it's your computer or your phone or social media, if it's alcohol or other substances, if it's anger or long-held grudges, whatever it may be, do everything in your power to get rid of these things that cause you to sin, that are pulling you away from the Lord and the freedom that he has offered to you in Jesus Christ. Cut them loose. He has come to set you free so that you might find full life in him. Repent, repent today, friends. And you may not be able to do it yourself. So lean on the Lord, lean on your community, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin is powerful and it's often more powerful than we are alone. And so don't try to go it by yourself. But it's the one of the truths of life that sin is unavoidable. The sin of our own hearts, the sin of other people, and sin always comes with consequences. But this is where the promises of the gospel bring us hope. 
It's not just that once we put our trust in Jesus, we're magically removed from all of the mess of this world or that somehow we're spared from the trials of this life. We know that that's not true. But what the gospel tells us is that our sin has been forgiven because Jesus Christ took it upon himself and that our sin can be redeemed and that what we intend for evil, God can use for good because he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I want to look back at the the passages from the last two weeks, the ones that Preston preached on and Dan preached on, to find the good news of Jesus Christ in response to our sin. Last week, Preston preached on 1 John chapter 2, and verses 1 and 2 say this, I have written these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We see here in the the words of the Apostle John that God's desire is for us not to sin. God does not want us to carry that burden anymore. He wants us to be set free. And yet, if anyone does sin, and we all do, then he is your advocate with the Heavenly Father. And he has paid the penalty for your sin, and not just for yours, but for the whole world's. Salvation is waiting for all who would repent and receive it in Jesus' name. And then Dan preached on 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, and we read this verse already today, but verse 13 says, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And when we read this passage, we we see that this is a promise specific to David in those circumstances. But as Christians, we can transfer these promises to ourselves in Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, God has taken away our sin. And in Christ, the ultimate consequences of our sin have been erased. We We do not have to face eternal death and separation from God. In Christ, we will not die. We will not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we are sinful and broken people. Without hope in this world, save for the grace that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't like to admit that we're sinners. We don't like the fact that we sin. We don't like the fact that it affects us and the people around us. Lord, we thank you that you have come to set us free from sin and its ultimate consequences. So Lord, we pray, knowing that you have forgiven us, that you have given us grace, that our future is sure through your son, but we pray that you would root out the sin in our lives, that you would continue to work in us by your Holy Spirit, to sanctify us, to form us into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Would you open our eyes to see the places in our lives where sin still has a hold on us? Lord, and would you work in us to set us free? We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.